Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com, and this is Antiwar News for Thursday, December 8th, 2022. So the first story at the top of Antiwar.com today, Congress has unveiled the final version of the 2023 National Defense Authorization Act. And this piece of legislation, which is the military spending bill, is worth $858 billion. It's $45 billion more than what President Biden has requested. Um, So we thought that this was going to be the final amount. There was a report last week that I covered that said, you know, they raised it $45 billion. So where we're at right now, they released the final bill on Tuesday night, and the House is expected to vote on this this week, um, possibly as soon as Thursday. And once the House approves the bill, then it goes to the Senate where it's going to get approved, and then it goes to President Biden's desk. So this bill, it represents an 8% increase from the 2022 NDAA. So that's pretty significant in one year, 8%. And that the one last year was also larger than what Biden requested. So I guess that's going to be a pattern now. Um, It's the same pattern with aid for Ukraine. Uh, Congress has turned around and increased that when Biden asked for certain amounts. And it includes $817 billion for the Pentagon, and then the remaining funds go to other departments for other types of military spending, including the Energy Department's nuclear weapons program. So notable amendments that are packed into this NDAA, and um, I'll have more on this probably throughout the week because, you know, the bill, it's over 4,000 pages, and it's really tough to read through and figure out what's what. Um, but as time goes on, you know, we'll learn more about uh, what new notable amendments there are and what they mean. But when it comes to the Taiwan aid, it looks like there is $10 billion in this bill for Taiwan that will be dispersed over five years. So it's $2 billion each year. And this is the State Department's foreign military financing, which gives governments money to buy U.S.-made weapons. Um, so this is a pretty big deal. The U.S. has sold Taiwan weapons, you know, since they opened up with China and cut diplomatic ties with Taiwan. But giving them military aid like this is new. Uh, and China's not going to be too happy about it. And the NDAA, it also includes $800 million in the Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative. And this is a program that allows the U.S. to purchase weapons for Ukraine. $800 million, I know it doesn't sound like much when we're talking about Ukraine aid. Because the vast majority of the spending on the Ukraine war is going to come through emergency funding. That's that's what Congress has has been authorizing and Biden has been signing off on. Um, you know, the about sixty-seven billion that they've approved so far has has come in that way. You know, the White House asked Congress to make these funds available, and they do. And right now, the White House is waiting for Congress to approve another huge tranche of aid for Ukraine worth thirty-seven point seven billion. But this eight hundred million—I mean, eight hundred million—is a lot of money uh, when we're talking about weapons that we're buying, purchasing for Ukraine, and. Uh, so it is significant. And then the NDAA, it also includes $11.5 billion in new investments for a program called the Pacific Deterrence Initiative. And this is about building up in the Asia Pacific 
um, you know, so they can better confront China in the region, so they can encircle China more, which the Pentagon has identified China as its main focus, you know, the top challenge, how they call it, facing the United States. Um, so, you know, building up in the region is a big part of that. In the NDAA, it also includes a lot of investments in what they call research and development of new technologies. I believe it's over $100 billion for that. And that, they say, U.S. military leaders say, is all about um, they need it to compete with China. Um, investment into like things like AI and hypersonic missiles, all this advanced stuff um, is all about China. And it really makes you wonder what you know, a future war would look like with China if we're talking about things like AI and and hypersonics and just all sorts of futuristic weapons that they're trying to develop. Okay, so the next one, um, the Ukraine aid audit bill has been voted down by a Democrat-led panel. So the House Foreign Affairs Committee narrowly voted down a bill that would audit the tens of billions of dollars that Congress has approved to spend on the war in Ukraine. So the bill was rejected by the Democrat-led panel in a vote of 26 to 22. So since it's just um, the House Foreign Affairs Committee, there's not like a roll call, roll call for the vote, but it looks like um, all the Democrats voted against it, and a lot of Republicans voted in favor of it. So while this was voted down, and this is the bill that was introduced by Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's a Republican from Georgia, you know, she introduced this bill with Thomas Massey and Matt Gates, Barry Moore and Andrew Clyde, and they are all against arming Ukraine and voted against, you know, the $40 billion Ukraine um, aid package. But, you know, while they're more uh, on the fringe, I guess, in the Republican Party, this bill did get support from mainstream Republicans. And Green is saying that she's going to reintroduce the measure in the next Congress when Republicans have a majority in the House. And she even got support from Michael McCall, who uh, he's the top Republican on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. He's likely going to be in charge of it when the Republicans take the House. You know, he said, according to The Washington Post, during this hearing uh, where they they voted on this bill, he said that the era of writing blank checks is over. And there he's kind of channeling what uh, McCarthy said, who is going to be most likely going to be the House Speaker, the Republican who said that, you know, a, a Republican House is not going to be willing to write blank checks for Ukraine. So while this is all good that they're coming out in support for oversight, I mean, these guys, McCall, are very hawkish and are very much in favor of continuing to arm Ukraine. It's not like they have any ideas about slowing this aid down. In fact, McCall did just recently say he was very critical of the Biden administration for not sending longer range weapons to Ukraine. And he wants to encourage Ukrainian strikes attack on Crimea, even though that could risk a huge escalation with Russia. You know, so he's saying things like that. While also, you know, coming out in favor of increased oversight. Um, so... You know, I, I mean, I don't think we should expect, expect any real major changes here. Um, we might just figure out that a lot of money has been wasted, um, which, you know, it, it is good, I guess, that we should know exactly how this money is being spent while it is being spent. 
And Democrats have been very critical of the growing Republican calls for more oversight, which, you know, this really shows that they're voting against, you know, oversight and accountability for this hundreds of billions of dollars that that has been spent. Not hundreds. Not, we're not quite there yet, but we're getting close. Um, and even Adam Smith, who's the head of the House Armed Services Committee, Democrat from Washington, as I went over last week, he dismissed these concerns as Russian propaganda, the calls for oversight. You just see the attitude. I mean, it's just so ridiculous. And we have Finland saying, you know, weapons are winding up on the black market. Nigeria's president is saying that weapons are from Ukraine are ending up in, um, in Africa. Um, okay, so the next one here. Putin says that the war in Ukraine is a long process. So almost 10 months, it's been almost 10 months. I mean, December 24th will be 10 months since Russia invaded. So 10 months in, Putin has acknowledged that the what he calls Russia's special military operation is a long process. And he signaled that he has no plans to give up the Ukrainian territory that Russia has captured. So he said this during a meeting of Russia's Human Rights Council. He said, quote, as for the duration of the special military operation, well, of course, this can be a long process, end quote. But he did say um, that he saw no need to mobilize more troops. So Russia recently just mobilized 300,000 fresh troops, and he's saying that they don't need to mobilize anymore. And right now, you know, they've been building up and reinforcing all their positions in the territory that they control. And he said that the war so far has brought results for Russia, including the territories that it annexed in the Donbass, Kherson, and Zaporizhia. He said, quote, new territories have appeared. This is a significant result for Russia. These are serious questions. Take the Sea of Azov, which has become Russia's inland sea, end quote. So what he's saying there really is that Russia has no plans to give up this territory that they have annexed. And he said that what he thinks is the most important thing is not the territory, but the people who live there that who want to be a part of Russia. So I think, you know, his comments are just another sign that there is really no end in sight of the fighting to the fighting in Ukraine. Because while you have Putin saying this, you have officials in Kiev, Ukrainian officials saying that their goal is still to drive Russia out of all of this territory. And they are still saying that they want to drive Russia out of Crimea. Um, so it's no good. And, you know, the U S basically supports these goals. And in his comments on Wednesday, Putin also warned that the risk of nuclear war is increasing when he was asked by a member of the human rights council, if he would commit to a no first use policy for nuclear weapons. He said that such an obligation could prevent Russia from using a nuclear weapon if it is uh, on the other end of a nuclear attack, I guess he's saying, you know, if they hit us first, it'll be hard for us to hit them back. So the U.S., of course, slammed Putin's comments, accusing him of loose talk about nuclear weapons. But, I mean, the U.S. also does not have a no first use policy. It's And they spelled that out in their recent nuclear posture review that they could use nuclear weapons first. Um, and it's a pretty loose policy, um, the way that they that they wrote it out. And Biden has also warned, you know, what Putin basically said was the risk of nuclear war is higher today and we don't have no first use policy. And, you know, that's very similar to th what the U S has been saying and, and Biden warning that uh, 
you know, the risk of nuclear war is higher today than any time since the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis. Unfortunately, he's not doing enough to reduce the risk. All right, the next one, Ukraine is asking NATO for leftover Afghanistan funds. So this is according to a report from Politico that NATO is considering using a $3.4 billion fund that was meant to support the now defunct U.S.-backed Afghan government. They're considering using these, these funds to provide more aid for Ukraine. Known as the Afghan National Army Trust Fund, the money was donated by individual NATO countries. The report said that Kiev has asked NATO to consider using the money to support Ukraine in its war against Russia. So Ukraine's asking for the money. Um, You know, they're always asking for more. And the U.S. is not a contributor to this fund. Um, This is for other NATO countries. But the U.S. has previously provided Ukraine with military equipment that was meant for the old Afghan government. Earlier this year, the U.S. sent Kiev 16 Russian-made Mi-17 helicopters that it originally procured for Afghanistan. So Western officials told Politico that NATO allies have discussed using the Afghan funds for Ukraine and are leaning toward doing so, uh, although they said the decision is up to each individual country. So basically, um, if a country contributed X amount, say $100 million, to this fund, they're going to have the option to either take it out or give it to Ukraine, or give some of it to Ukraine. And if the money is used for Ukraine, they can transfer it to this fund. They have a Ukraine fund that they set up back in 2016 um, when NATO was giving aid to Ukraine back then, um, before, I mean, at much lower levels than it is now, of course. But, you know, still, NATO started supporting Ukraine after the ousting of Yanukovych in 2014. Um. And I just point out in the article how Ukraine is entirely reliant on aid from the West to fund its war effort and keep its government afloat. I mean, without this, they wouldn't, they they say it themselves, they wouldn't be able to keep fighting this war. Um, Okay, so the next article we have here, the U.S. to hike its military presence in Australia. So Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin said on Tuesday that the U.S. will increase its military presence in Australia in a buildup that's aimed at China. So he said this in a joint press conference with Australia's defense minister and Australia's foreign minister there in Washington for a visit. Austin said that the U.S. will increase its rotational forces in Australia. He said, quote, that includes rotations of bomber task forces, fighters, and future rotations of U.S. Navy and U.S. Army capabilities, end quote. So details on the rotational deployments aren't clear, but they will likely be focused in in northern Australia near the city of Darwin in the Northern Territory. U.S. Marines have been rotating through there. And uh, Australia's ABC News reported back in October that the U.S. is going to be deploying six nuclear-capable B-52 bombers to Australia to a base just south of Darwin, and the U.S. is building facilities to house these bombers, which are expected to be completed by 2026. So the U.S. and Australia have been stepping up military cooperation since signing the AUKUS Pact with the U.K., so that's that um, military deal that the U.S., Australia, and Britain signed last year, and it's part of the U.S. effort to build up alliances against China. And the deal focuses on technology sharing and will give Australia the capability to acquire nuclear-powered submarines, 
But also another aspect of it is that, you know, the U.S. and Australia agreed that the U.S. was going to increase its military presence. And now we're seeing them, um, you know, make some plans for it. So while he was announcing the additional deployments, you know, Austin leveled some pretty serious accusations at China, accusing them of dangerous actions in the region. He said, quote, China's dangerous and coercive actions throughout the Indo-Pacific, including around Taiwan and toward the Pacific Island countries and in the East and South China Seas, threaten regional peace and stability, end quote. So many countries in the region are not eager to get on board with what the U.S. is trying to do in that region, their confrontational approach to China. Um, you know, Australia is is on board, but Australia is pretty far from China. Um, you know, they are having trouble getting other Pacific countries on board, although they do have some serious plans to increase their presence in the Philippines, which is much closer to China. But as I went over the other day, the president or prime minister of Papua New Guinea said that his country, you know, he doesn't want to be involved in this, does not want to go against China. And I believe that's a, uh, a view of many of these Pacific Island nations, as he said, and as well, Indonesia said something similar. Um, while the Philippines is into this Welcoming, you know, the U.S. plans to increase military facilities there. I believe the other Southeast Asian Asian countries, Indonesia and Singapore, you know, they do have military. They do cooperate militarily with the U.S., but I don't think they wouldn't welcome any sort of big U.S. military base in the region. Uh, okay, so the next one here, Japan is going to increase its military budget by 56% over five years. So that's a pretty huge increase. Um, and, and Japan's prime minister, Kishida, he ordered his ministers to raise the, these spending levels um, this week. So they would spend $318 billion over the next five years, more than doubling Japan's military budget. So $318 billion over, I know when we're talking you know, we were just discussing the U.S. military budget, which is, um, you know, over $800 billion, and Japan is going to spend $318 billion over the next five years. It might not sound like too much, but you have to remember, you know, the U.S. outspends, you know, the next, like, I forget what it is exactly, but it's something like the next six countries combined. Um, so why this, this is significant because... This is the latest sign that Japan is moving away from being a pacifist country as outlined by its post-World War II constitution. You know, under that constitution, Japan's military is only supposed to be for self-defense. And um, even though it, it technically is, I guess they do have a pretty big military already, and they're really trying to ramp it up. So Kishida made the order about a week after he announced that he wanted to bring military spending to about 2% of Japan's gross domestic product, the GDP, by 2027. So this is all part of that plan. And that's the level that NATO wants its members to reach. Japan's military spending has typically been less than 1%. Uh, you know, it's been around the 1% mark of its GDP, but it's typically less. And the U.S., you know, this is part of the U.S.'s plans against China. They've been encouraging Japan to increase military spending. Uh, President Biden told Kishida back in October 2021, that was when Kishida first came into office, and Biden told him 
that the U.S. expects Japan to hike military spending. And the U.S. has also been encouraging Japan to increase military cooperation with regional countries. And earlier this year, Japan signed a deal with Australia that will allow Australian and Japanese troops to deploy together. So this is significant because this allows Australian troops to deploy to Japan. And this is the first country that Japan has made this kind of deal with, besides the U.S., of course, um, since the end of World War II. So, I mean, huge changes are happening in this region. And a lot of this is about the U.S. trying to build up around China. You know, Shinzo Abe, the prime minister of Japan, who was um, killed earlier this year, he was assassinated. He was already out of office when he was killed, but he was the one that really got the ball rolling on moving Japan's military away from the post-World War II constitution. And Kishida said last year that he wants to give Japan the ability to strike other countries. He wants Japan to be able to hit targets in China and North Korea, and that would require amending the constitution. So these big changes are happening, encouraged by the U.S. Similar things are happening in South Korea. You know, because the U.S. has such a huge presence, I mean, I think in Japan, it's about there's about 50,000 U.S. troops, and in South Korea, it's about 30,000. You know, the U.S. basically controls their militaries. And the U.S. used to have restrictions on South Korea and on, on the missiles that they could develop, on the range that they could develop missiles. And they've lifted those restrictions. They want them to get longer-range missiles. Um, so you, know, you see what the U.S. is preparing for in the region. They're preparing for war. Okay, the next one here. Uh, Turkey sets a deadline for the SDF withdrawal from northern Syria. So Turkey set a deadline for the U.S.-backed uh, SDF, which is a Kurdish-led group from areas of northern Syria near the Turkish border. And this is a Turkish source speaking to Al Jazeera. So both the U.S. and Russia, they're trying to avert a Turkish invasion of northern Syria. And the source said that Ankara has asked Washington and Moscow to press the SDF to withdraw. So there's three cities in the region near the Turkish border that they want them to leave. So this is all still a response to the Istanbul bombing that Turkey blamed on the PKK, which is a, they consider a terrorist group, and they consider the SDF to be a you know serious PKK affiliate. So Turkey launched a series of airstrikes against them after the Istanbul bombing. Um, they said they killed a lot of people. It was pretty pretty huge. Uh, Axios reported on Wednesday that the CIA warned Turkey, you know, strongly that its air and artillery strikes in northern Syria endanger U.S. troops. Although, you know, they initially publicly the U.S. was not uh, didn't seem like they were against what Turkey was doing. But Turkey's been threatening to launch a ground invasion, and the U.S. is trying to prevent it. Um, so the U.S. has about 900 troops in SDF-controlled areas of Syria. So that's eastern Syria where the U.S. has an occupation. And by backing the SDF, they can keep all this territory, which is about one-third of Syria, out of the Syrian government's hands. Um, and the U.S. paused patrols with the SDF after the recent Turkish airstrikes, but apparently they've resumed them. So what's interesting is that the SDF has been critical of the U.S. saying that they're not doing enough to avert Turkish 
the Turkish ground invasion. And they're also open to making a deal with the Syrian government. They asked Russia to broker a deal. But the U.S. occupation, it gets in the way of that. So the head of the SDF actually told a Saudi newspaper on Wednesday, Ashark al-Awsit, uh, he told, um, that's the newspaper's name, uh, Mazlum Abdi is the head of the SDF. He told this newspaper that he wants the SDF to become part of the Syrian government's army, to integrate with the Syrian military, and he's that he's in talks with Damascus on the issue. So this is something I don't think like the U.S. would would not allow, so... I wonder if at some point, if they do make it some kind of deal that the SDF is going to want to try to get the U.S. to leave. I, I don't know. Um, it's a pretty interesting development. Um, and it does go, go to show, you know, the narrative that if the U.S. left Syria, they would be hanging the Kurds out to dry. It isn't is false because they've said over the years that if the U.S. leaves, they'll turn to Damascus. They say that's always an option for them. Um, so the U.S. should just get out of the way and let. That way, the Syrian government can they can secure the border area, and that would be acceptable to Turkey. All right, it's just a mess over there, and you know the U.S. just has no business being there. And by being there, it's just such a tripwire for for a war with so many so many different ways to get sucked into a war by staying in Syria. All right, the last news story that we have here it's actually from the Gray Zone. From Kit Clarenberg. It's interesting. Uh, you should go read it. Um, it's about Anomaly 6, which is a private spying firm that is based in outside of Washington, D.C. And leaked documents reviewed by the Gray Zone reveal how they have this technology to spy on people all over the world and track phones all over the world. And this says that the British Ministry of Defense is a potential buyer for this spyware. So you can go check that out. Uh, but that's it for the news. Uh, you can check out our viewpoints. We have one from Jonathan Cook about Ben Gavir the, uh, and the new Israeli government that's forming. Uh, that's really good. He's really thorough on that, that issue. Um, one from Stephen Walt at Foreign Policy about the irrational Ukraine debate. Stephen Wertheim at the New York Times. This is kind of a troubling read because it's titled, Can America Really Envision World War? three and he just discusses how what it really would mean um world war three like you know are we is it even on people's minds what what it would really mean you know um and then bill blunden at the american conservative the inevitable winner of the war in ukraine and that's an interesting one because he's talking about the uh financers uh you know like the world bank and the imf and people that are going to be giving loans out at after the the war's over for the construction of Ukraine and how that's a big way that that money is going to be made besides just the arms industry. Um, and then spotlight from Ted Snyder about how Putin and Zelensky have finally agreed on something, but it's a bad thing. And then they've agreed you know, that there's not going to be any more Minsk uh, agreements. But that's it for me for today. I'll be back tomorrow. With some more news, support the show, antiwar.com slash donate. Like and subscribe on YouTube. Um, all that good stuff. Share the show. Tell your friends. Uh, I'll, I'll talk to you tomorrow. Thanks for listening.